If you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, I want you to take it and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 4. If you've got a Bible that you brought with you, turn to Acts chapter 4. Maybe it's on your phone, or if not, you can pick up a Bible in the pew in front of you. It'll be from the same version that I'll be reading, so it'll all kind of be together. And over the last couple of weeks, and then today we're finishing up a series of messages we've called Generous. And we've been really kind of breaking down that word to ask, what does it mean to be generous? Why should we be generous? And then how do we go about doing that? And the kind of the um, verse behind this or the um, motivation behind it actually comes from a verse of scripture that we've talked about at this time of year for the last three or four years. A few years ago, we did a series of messages called How to Be Rich. And the point of that message series was not how to get money, how to obtain money, how to become rich. The point of that message series and what we tried to think about at this time of year over the last several years is how do we who are rich behave in this world? And the first thing that people automatically say is, well, I'm not rich, so I don't have to worry about that. But it's clear when you look at any objective measurement That if you're living in the United States of America, you have a house, you have transportation, you have food on the table, you don't have to worry about a meal, you are rich. Like top 1%, 2% in the world. And so the question then becomes, if we are rich, even if we don't feel like we're rich, my guess is if I said, how many of you feel like you're really rich today? Like it wouldn't be a whole lot of hands go up. Even if we don't feel rich if we are rich, then how do we live? And this is what 1 Timothy chapter 6 tells us. 1 Timothy chapter 6 reminds us that we are to, those of us who are rich in the present age, so this is for us, that we're not arrogant with our wealth, we don't set our hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but we put our hope in God, in God alone. And that God richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Let me just say something real quickly. One of the things that I don't want to do is to make us feel guilty about having been blessed by God. I mean, it says right there in the passage that we are to enjoy what God has given us. This is not a message series. This is not a moment to say, feel really bad and guilty if you have money. The question is, what do you do with the blessings that God has given you? And then he tells us to instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. To be generous and willing to share. And so over the last few weeks, we've asked the question, why should we be generous and then what should it look like? We actually started a couple of weeks ago and I would suggest if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks or you've missed one of the messages in this series, it's just three, the last two weeks and today, I would go back and listen to them. You can get there on our website because the first message really set a foundational moment about why we ought to be generous. And one of the things that happens sometimes in church is you come to church, especially if you're a believer in Christ and you've been coming for a while, maybe you've been given for a while. And so you give, but it's more out of just this is what I've always done and you kind of forget the why. And part of what I want to do in this series is to remind us, what's the why behind why we give? And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Jesus got angry, and he did get angry, and that's what the whole message is about, is what made Jesus angry. He particularly got angry when you took advantage of people who weren't as fortunate as you, who were not able to have the access that you have to the things of God. And that if we want to live as Jesus lived, then we are to live our lives in a way that is generous and giving and bringing people to an understanding of who God is. Last week, we really talked about that being generous means that we always give a portion of what we have. That we always give a portion. 
The idea there is that it's not just something that um, is a, a portion is a sacrifice from our life or that a portion is something we can attempt every once in a while, but that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if this is who you are, that Scripture makes it clear that a portion of what you make should be given back to the Lord always. And the reason for that is not because God is upstairs in heaven. I don't know that heaven is upstairs. He's not the man upstairs, right? He's God Almighty. But I'm, God's not up, up in heaven going, you know what? I, I'm keeping a ledger and man, I, I really wish they would give more because I need more. God doesn't need anything. The point is that God, through our giving, allows us to be a part of doing something for his kingdom and for his glory. That we get to be a part of that. I don't know about you, but I get, I get emails. I get uh, mail in my in my regular mailbox. I still get that occasionally, right? And in that, I sometimes get requests to be a part of something, to give financially towards something, to help somebody out. Sometimes it's a, it's a local community organization. Sometimes it's a business that's getting started. Sometimes it's um, a political campaign. I get emails about Kickstarter. You know what Kickstarter is, right? Where people are trying out new products. They want you to invest in it. And if you get onto the front end, you get to be a part of this. And I watch those sometimes. And sometimes they're interesting. I look at them. I read them. But I think about it in my own life. Okay, how many times have I forgotten that my regular portion giving to God allows me to be a part of the greatest cause that has ever existed in the history of the world? So we always give a portion. And we've, we've turned that to a place where, where we think, you know, because our phrase last week was always a portion, sometimes a sacrifice. And today we're going to talk about the sacrifice part of that. But we've taken the phrase that in America we think that always a portion is a sacrifice. But it's not. That's just kind of the baseline. And so today we're going to pick up that kind of thought. And what we're going to do is talk about, okay, what does it look like to give as a sacrifice? I really want you to think about this in three different ways, three different kind of people here today that may be thinking about this. First of all, I mentioned this. Maybe you're a Christian. You're already doing this. You're given a portion. You're given a sacrifice, but you've lost the why and you've lost the cheerfulness in it. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you know what the Bible says and you've heard it preached on, but you just haven't been doing it. This is an opportunity to say, you know what, this is this is I'm going to start doing that. Or maybe you're here and you're. Um, a new believer, somebody that's just come to faith in Christ, or you just started coming to church here, and these are things that you haven't heard before, or maybe um, you're somebody that's wondering if this Jesus stuff is for you. What I want you to do is understand the reason behind what we're asking believers to do. And here's the truth I want you to understand, because anytime preachers start talking about money, people get nervous. Hands go on the wallets, purses get clutched a little bit. Like, preacher, now you done gone to meddling. We don't want you to do that, all right? But my goal here is not to, to raise offerings or to get more money. We'll talk about even something with that in a little bit. My goal is really to get you in line with what God intends for you to do so that you can experience the blessings God has for you. 
John 8.32 is a verse we use for a lot of other things, but I think it is appropriate here as well. It says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, here's the thing about that verse of Scripture. That was spoken to a group of people that were wondering whether Jesus was truly who he says he was, if Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus is telling them, if you would trust in me and know the truth, that my life, my way, my will will set you free. And we use that for people that are stuck in sin or stuck in bondage. But the truth is, that is true for all of us, that the reason this principle is so important is because it is a principle that can hold us back from experiencing what God intends for us to experience. And so we ask the question, what does it look like to be generous? Last week I told you there are four pictures in the Old Testament about what generosity looks like. The first one is like if you take a towel and you dip it into a bucket of water and you pull the towel up and it is completely filled so much so that water is just dripping out of it. It is saturated is the word there. That generosity means we saturate someone else. We saturate a cause. We saturate someone in need so much that they are completely full. Or another picture in the Old Testament is of a vase that is sitting there with water. And someone is pouring water from a pitcher. And he doesn't stop at a third. He doesn't stop at a half. He doesn't even stop at three-fourths or at full. He just keeps pouring until it overflows outside of the vase. That our generosity ought to be like saturating someone. That it ought to be like overflowing. In the New Testament, there's a picture of generosity is looking around, constantly assessing who we can help, where we can help, what we can do. And then my favorite picture of all is in the New Testament, it says that we are to live our lives open-handed as if what we have is not ours. And it is available for anyone. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is the definition we used last week is generosity is living life, always looking for opportunities to overflow into someone else's life. And that the practicality of that flows out in meaning that it's always a portion. Joyful obedience that leads me to give first to the Lord out of what he provides for me. And that sometimes it's a sacrifice. Where we have spirit-led generosity that occasionally calls me to give more than I think I can to get in on what God is doing in the moment. Acts chapter 4. Starting in verse 32. This is a summary statement that comes kind of at a section when it's about to change an understanding of what's happening in the church. The first real challenges of the church are about to come in chapter 5 and following. But it tells us in chapter 4 verse 32. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions were his own. But instead they held everything in common. I'll stop there for a second. We go back just one. I want to stop there because I want to show you the first miracle of this whole part. All right? Because this is a miracle. It tells us in Acts 4.32 that the entire group. Do you know what entire means? All of them. The entire group were of one heart and one mind. Now here's what I want you to understand. We're talking about three or four thousand people. Some of you are looking like, why is that a miracle? Have you ever been to a church business meeting? Have you ever been? They were all of one heart and one mind. In my previous church, here's the problem when you've only pastored two churches. 
You can't say in a church I used to pastor and people not know where it was, right? And some of those people still listen online. So I'm about to make some of them go, well, why is he talking about us? In a previous church I pastored, all right, we did a remodeling project. And in that remodeling project, it was an old church building that had exposed brick on the inside. And we had an hour and a half business meeting on whether we were going to paint the brick or not. And I don't know if you realize this or not. There were some people passionate on both sides of the disagreement. The entire group believed of one heart and one mind. And no one claimed, no one claimed that his possessions was just his. Instead, they said, it's mine, it's yours, we're all together. With great power. The apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on all of them. Now stop there for a second too, because think about this. I want you to get what's going on here before we get to the next verse, because the next verse is going to explain this verse. What we have here is, nobody thought it was their own. They're all living in one accord. They're all in one soul. They're all in one mind. And then it tells us, and as the apostles, the leaders, as the preachers, were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was mega power, great power, supernatural power, not of this world power, was upon them. Great grace was on all of them. So as the leaders are speaking the gospel, there is an extraordinary amount of power and wisdom flowing out of them and for every person that was in the congregation for every person that was a part of this movement that was happening in Jerusalem great mega grace was upon them it was a beautiful time it was an important time this whole thing is just getting started we're weeks into the start of the church and God is giving blessing and favor and honor and glory and things are happening more rapidly than they ever expected as the disciples as the apostles speak God is blessing people are being saved as those are coming into the fold things are happening and people all around Jerusalem are like what in the world is going on something is happening here and then it tells us what was helping them to have great power for because there was not a needy person among them because all of those who owned lands or houses sold them brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles feet I've been doing pastoring now for 16 years. I ain't everybody ever had somebody sell their house and bring the money and stick it at my feet. Right? This is a unique time in the history of the church. I'm not suggesting that you do that this week either, all right? He goes on to say this. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. And then he gives us a personal example here. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, so Joseph... Very Jewish name, strong Jewish name. Levite means he was part of the class of people that were considered for priesthood, that were the spiritual leaders of the area from Cyprus by birth. The one of the apostles called Barnabas. Some of you didn't even know Barnabas had a name besides Barnabas, but that's his nickname, son of encouragement. Barnabas, Joseph, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, first thing I want to address just real quickly, because sometimes people get really crazy about this particular part of Scripture, because it sounds a whole lot like a governmental system that requires people to give everything out to a central government, and then the government disperses it. It's like, was the Bible teaching socialism here? Well, I'm not here to debate political ideology, but I will tell you this. This has nothing to do with governmental stuff. This is about a local church taking care of itself. 
has nothing to do with whether government should do this or should not do this. I'm glad to be an American. I'm proud to be here. And so it's not a political statement at all to describe this. What it's describing is that the church, when taking care of themselves, especially at this moment when it was being birthed, because all around them objections were coming from every way you could imagine. And the only people they had in many situations were each other. And what we see in this passage is a true description of open-handed living. People who said, it's mine, it's yours, there's no real ownership. It wasn't that someone was forcing them to give it up. It was a voluntary action on their part to say, this is no longer mine, it is ours. That we live in a way that is constantly giving a portion of who we are, but that sometimes in special moments there is sacrificial giving that comes along with it. Like Barnabas, who sold his land, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. A couple of things I want you to see about sacrificial giving, and then we'll be done today. First of all, sacrificial giving begins with a right heart towards God that leads to a right view of things. I mentioned this a minute ago. The first miracle of this passage is they were all of one heart, all of one soul, all of one mind. No one, no one, not a single one claimed that anything was their own. That's because their hearts had been radically transformed by the presence of Jesus Christ. They had been inwardly changed so that their outward lives reflected an inward sacrifice that was happening. And here's the truth. Giving money... Giving time, giving talents is not what God ultimately desires of our lives. What he ultimately desires of our lives is radical obedience to who he is and what he's called us to. And a part of that always leads to giving a portion and sacrificially giving at times. Before outward sacrifice, there has to be an inward change from the inside out. And we have a problem in particular in American Christianity because in some ways we have equated American Christianity with the American dream. And those two things are not the same thing. The American dream is that anybody can succeed, pull themselves up, get to a place, make more money, be more profitable, be more prosperous. And the truth is, that's what America sells, that you can come from anywhere, be a part of any, you can work hard enough, do enough to get to a place where you succeed. The gospel has nothing to do with A solely American dream. The gospel says that if you will surrender your life, God will save you. But it doesn't necessarily mean earthly blessing. And the problem a lot of Americans have, and the reasons we get nervous when we talk about stuff, is because, A, we have too much stuff. And B, we like our stuff too much. I heard this week a a guy that was talking and he said... um, I don't even remember where I heard it, but I, the, what he said stuck with me. He said, I, I, I really quickly realized when I went into my storage room that I had too much stuff. He said, so I took the stuff that I didn't want anymore, and I put my stuff I didn't want anymore in my front yard. And some people that already had too much stuff came by my front yard and bought the stuff I didn't want anymore to take back to their houses where they already had too much stuff. We just exchanged too much stuff with each other. And it's Christmas season. Aren't you glad we're not all about to get more stuff? I didn't say get stuffed. That's this week. That's Thanksgiving. I said stuff. All right? 
For the last couple of years, David Platt has been saying this quote, that if ancient Christians, those from the first, second, third century, came to America today, there would be two things that would absolutely shock them about American Christianity. The first would be how comfortable we are with sexuality that is not talked about as good in the Bible. And I just... I don't mean what you naturally think about. I just mean how comfortable we are with advertisements and commercials in general. Not to mention the epidemic of porn in our country. Not to mention what's being laid bare before us about men, women's attitudes towards it. David Platt said that one of the things that ancient Christians would be appalled at is our comfort level with abhorrent sexuality. Secondly, he says, they would be amazed at how materialistic we are. Most Christians through the history of time have had nothing. Nothing. And if we're honest with ourselves, most of the time, our stuff has an impact on our lives. And we care about it too much. We don't care about other people's stuff. We just care about our stuff. I was thinking about this um, a few months ago. I uh, was with a friend and um, he parked in Nashville somewhere. We had met and we, he parked in Nashville. And I remember thinking, you know, there are parts of Nashville that you park in and, um, and it's perfectly fine. And then there are parts of Nashville that you park in and you, you're not real sure if um, your car is going to be there when you get back. And so this was one of those kind of areas. And I remember getting out of the car and just thinking, well, it's his car. Like... You know, if it's not here when we get back, it's his, right? Now, I know you're thinking, Pastor, that is terrible, right? How many of you went to your neighbor's house tonight and made sure their stuff was locked up like it was supposed to be? Right? Anybody come by my house, check, make sure? I'm, let's see if, Pastor, let's see, if he, see if he locked up last night, all right? Now, I mean, some of you drove by my house and honked at me crazily yesterday, Teresa Richardson, but I'm talking about just in general, all right? How many of you, like, check on other people's stuff? Now, maybe if they say, hey, I'm going to be out of town, can you check on my stuff? But if you routinely went to somebody's house and checked out, hey, did you lock up tonight, just making sure? First of all, they think you were weird. Second of all, you would go, what are you doing? It's not your stuff, right? Here's the thing. You're thinking, what in the world are you talking about? Here's the thing. Most of us think of our stuff as ours, and so we're really protective of it. When a biblical understanding of it is just like it says in Acts chapter 4, it's not ours anyways. We care a whole lot less about our stuff when it's not ours. John MacArthur has said that a very practical test of a Christian's love is how much he or she is willing to sacrifice financially. Like, all right, pastor, you can move on. Let's get past that, right? But here's the thing. The reason that makes such a big difference is because generosity is all about the heart. It's not about the money, it's not about the time, it's not about the talents, it's not about what you give. It's about the heart that leads to that. Matthew six twenty one is a verse that you hear a lot of times, but it's just so convicting when it says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. I've told you this, I read that wrongly for so many years, that I said, where your heart is, your treasure will go. But that's not what it says. It says, where you put your time, where you put your effort, where you put your money, your heart will go to that. And so the pr- question of the day is, where is your heart going? There's a story in Mark chapter 12 that talks about the heart. In Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, it says, Sitting across from the temple treasury, he, who's he? 
Jesus watched the crowd drop money into the treasury. Now, I want to show you this for a second, all right? I want you to think about this. Imagine you went to church today, and as it came time for the offering, which we haven't done today, but we will. Now, when it came time for offering, that there was a chair sitting right there where everybody gave their money, and Jesus went and sat down. Now, read it. What does it say? Sitting across from where they brought their money. So they had a box that would sit there. People would bring their money in. They would put it in the box. The picture we get here is as the people are starting to come give their money, Jesus sits there and watches them. Now, how different would it be is when you started coming up and giving your offering? I stood right over there and just watched what you were doing. I don't know what anybody gives here, right? But you imagine Jesus is sitting there. Can you imagine the discussions happening with people in the back row? Like, what else you got? Like, we got to give something else extra. Well, well, he's sitting there. I mean, he's sitting there. Right? And how uncomfortable is that? Jesus is just watching you as you go, hmm, hmm. Okay. Oh, like, what is, I don't think he was reacting probably until. It says many rich people were putting in large sums. I bet they were, right? Really, this has got to bring out the best we got today. Then you know this story, right? If you've been in church, then a poor widow came, dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. And that's when Jesus, he's watching the whole thing. So people are coming in, you know, they're crisping the bills and sticking them in, pouring into the jar. And then this woman comes and puts two tiny coins. Jesus goes, hey, come here, guys, guys, come here, come here, come here. Like what? What, Jesus? My idea is, she's still standing there. Hey guys, wait, wait. He's wait. Come here guys. What? I'm gonna tell you something. That widow, she put in more money than all the others. And the disciples were like, no. Not really. Like, I know we haven't been sitting here like you have Jesus, but We've seen some big stuff go in there. And then Jesus tells them, he explains it to them. How do I know they were questioning that? Because he explains it to them. He says, for they all gave out of their surplus. But out of her poverty, she has put everything she has in. All she has to live on. She gave sacrificially. I heard an example of this from modern day this week from an unlikely source. So this whole be rich idea, the whole idea that we get from 1 Timothy actually came sparked with an idea that came from um, Andy Stanley, who's a pastor at North Point Community Church down in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, Andy still does, a, they do a be rich campaign and they've given millions of dollars to places all around them. And this week he had a special guest explain kind of the benefits of giving and what that means. And it was a guy that I had not thought of would be on the stage for a sermon. It was Jeff Foxworthy. You know who Jeff Foxworthy is, right? How many of you have no clue who Jeff Foxworthy is? All right, there you go. Look at that. David Jackson's hurting right there, right? Jeff Foxworthy has sold more comedy albums than any other person in the history of the world, all right? So you might be a redneck if... Blue collar comedy tour, all right? But here's the thing you may not know about Jeff Foxworthy. Jeff Foxworthy, for the last 10 years, for the last 10 years, Jeff Foxworthy has been leading a Bible study on Tuesday morning at the Atlanta Mission for Homeless. 
Every week for 10 years. He said that he showed up. He said a guy came up to him at a thing and said, hey, man, I want to talk to you about the Atlanta mission. He said, all right, man, we'll go talk sometime. And he said he invited me down there. And he said my whole thing was, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to do commercials for you? you want me to do a funny joke about it? What do you want me to do? And he said, I just want you to come be a part of this group of guys. So he started with 12 guys and they started a Bible study. He said it's now up over 200 guys. They do a Bible study with guys in the program that at this homeless shelter, like the National Rescue Mission, if you agree to go through the program to get off of drugs and rehabilitate your life, they will provide you housing and food for a certain period of time. And so Jeff Foxworthy talked about living, or not living, about doing that Bible study every Tuesday morning. And he said, he said the first few days I did it, he said, I knew I was going to be terrible. So I stopped at Chick-fil-A every day to get chicken biscuits just so somebody would show up. And after 10 years, he said he got an idea about wanting the guys to be able to give back on their own. And I thought it would be good if you just heard him tell the rest of the story. So watch the screens. Care of you because you're homeless. We want you not to be homeless. And so after about a year of doing um, the program, Jim Reese, who quit his job as CEO of a Fortune 100 company to run the Atlanta mission. Just an amazing story in itself. I said to Jim, I said, Jim, they need to bless somebody because we're providing every meal. We're providing the beds. We're providing the towels and the soap. They need to bless somebody. And I said, I want to give them all at Christmas a hundred bucks. And Jim's like, oh no, I don't want people on the street buying crack. No, don't give them a hundred bucks. And so, and, and I just, you know, I kept praying over this and I said, I'm telling you, it's, it's going to be okay. I just feel like God's telling me it's going to be okay. So we ended up on 50 bucks. And so by this time, the 12 had grown into, you know, 250 guys on Tuesday morning. And so I went to the bank and got crisp $50 bills. And at the end of the thing, we gave every guy in the program a $50 bill. And guys are jumping up going, I can get a bus ticket. I can go home for Christmas. I can buy my kids presents. I mean, they were high-fiving and so excited. And I said to them, I said, okay, that's your money. You can do it whatever you want to. But three blocks away, there's a school that caught on fire last month, and it burned up all of their stuff. And I said, so they're really struggling without notebooks and paper and pencils and things like that. I said, I was just down at Children's Health Care last week, and they told me that over the Christmas holidays, there will be 300 kids there on Christmas Day. And it's the coldest winter in a in 100 years in Atlanta, and there's people sleeping under cardboard. So whatever you guys collectively want to donate into this basket in the middle of the room we as group leaders have pledged to match you dollar for dollar you know the 15 group leaders will match you 250 guys dollar for dollar and and we'll go buy notebook paper and we'll go buy hats and gloves and we'll go buy toys for kids 250 homeless addicts got up and went and put their 50 dollar bill in the bucket Every man in the room. And then they started digging through their pockets and pulling out $5 bills and $10 bills. And then they went back to their room and they got their change and started dumping it in there. And at that point, I got up and walked around the corner and and sat against the wall and sobbed like I have not sobbed as an adult in my life. Because I'm like, man, I feel good about myself when I sit there and write a check for somebody. But I never gave every dime I had to somebody else when your heart is right sacrificial giving is just a part of what you do 
Because my things are surrendered and I'm living open-handed. Now again, this isn't always a sacrifice. This isn't attempting to make you a martyr or a penniless beggar. But that at times there are moments when it's just right to do that. Now here's what I'll tell you. One of the reasons I love preaching this sermon right now is because a lot of times when pastors preach this kind of sermon, their next statement is, and here's what I want you to give to. And I don't have that today. I mean, I can, if you want, if you want to know, I can tell you, but this isn't a push for a certain thing for you to do. It's just the reality of what a Christian life is. That you always give something, and that sometimes you give a sacrifice. And here's the reason, here's the second thing, and then we're done. Sacrificial giving allows us to join God in a moment. The most, one of the most influential studies in my life is Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. And I remember the first time I did Experiencing God, I was a college student at Union University. I was there to become a pastor. That's, I knew that's what God had wanted me to do. But I'm trying to figure out what that looks like, how that goes. And I was in a group of, uh, with a group of guys from a, a social group I was a part of. We did Experiencing God together. And I remember opening that book and the first few pages of that book, of that study, just wrecked my world. Because it says, one of the first things in there it talks about is, it's not our job to discover God's will for our lives. And I was like, well, that's my whole point of being in college. Henry Blackaby says, the point of our existence is to find where God is already moving and join Him in that. To discover where God is already working and then join Him in the midst of that. Now, one of the things I love about giving sacrificially to things that matter is it allows us to join in that moment. That's why I do love our day of extravagant giving, because it allows us to join people like Terry and Angie Burkeen, where God is moving in Lynch, Kentucky, in that area of Kentucky. It allows us to join with somewhere like the next door, where women are given an opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ on a regular basis. It allows us to join with the International Mission Board and no one is doing international missions as well as the International Mission Board is to spread the gospel to the nations. Because sacrificial giving allows us to join God in that moment. That's what happened with Joseph called Barnabas. He sees at this moment that this is a pivotal moment for the church of God as it's expanding, as it's getting going, as this movement is developing. And he says, I want to be a part of that. And so he goes and he sells his field and he brings the money and he lays it at the apostles' feet. Now, again, it's more than just the act. Because in the very next chapter, and you can go read this later today in chapter 5, there are another couple of people that sell some land and they come and they say, I'm giving everything to the Lord. But the reality is they only gave a part of the Lord to the Lord and the rest they kept back for themselves. And the point they were trying to do was to gain favor with the Lord. And those two people didn't make it. Like, they died on the spot. And so it's not just the act, it's the heart behind it. And what's happening here is Barnabas is getting the opportunity to get in on the work of God. This week I read an example from David Green in a book called Giving It All Away. In that book he says that many people envision their lives like a game of Monopoly. Anybody here like Monopoly? Yeah, I like Monopoly because I like to dominate people with money. And he says that's how people see their lives. You accumulate as much money as you can, have as much as possible, more than anyone else at the end. And then when you get to the point that you have money in Monopoly, you can start putting those houses on 
and the hotels. And man, it feels good when that person comes around and they dial that, they roll that seven. You're like, woo, that's coming right to the Park Place Hotel. That'll be more money than you got. Bankrupt another one down. He says a lot of people see their lives that way. They're going to accumulate as much as you can, have as much as possible, drive others to a place if you need to, to where they can, sit back at the end and count your stacks of money and be excited about what you've gained. He said, a life lived for Christ is more like Uno. Any Uno fans out there? All right. And Uno, what's the point of Uno? To get rid of it all first, right? And if you end the game and you've still got cards in your hand, it's counted against you. He said, if we would live our lives more like Uno than Monopoly, we could see the Lord do some amazing things. As our attempt is to end it with everything being spent. Reminded me of the old Jim Elliott quote. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to attain what he cannot lose. You see, desperate prayer and sacrificial giving invites God to walk in and through our lives. And the whole point of sacrificial giving is not so place can have more money or all that. It really is an opportunity to invite God's movement into our lives. To see him move for the greatest cause that has ever existed. So my prayer is that I would live more like the game of Uno than Monopoly. And that I'd be willing to do whatever it takes. Spend whatever it costs to see God glorified in my life. Let's pray together.